Welcome to the Enduring Churches Podcast. I'm Alan and I'm here with Trent and we are settling into our new roles. And so now that we're starting to settle in, we wanted to get back to some of our interview series. And we are excited about today's interview because it's such an important, such a timely issue. One that's always necessary for us to talk about. And most of us aren't equipped for it, Trent. So so introduce our guest to us and tell us what we're going to be talking about today. That's right, Alan. I, you know, I, as I have ministered in churches, and I know that you have had the same experience, that we, we have people that we want to help to get out of addictions or to help families to deal with a loved one that is dealing with an addiction. And a lot of times I've just felt like I didn't have the right tools. I didn't know what to do, what to say, how to be a help. And so I've gotten to know Stephanie over the last few years, and she is a tremendous help and has a lot of experience in, in helping people deal with addiction. And so we wanted to gain some wisdom from her. So we're going to get to interview Stephanie Morcom. Uh, and so Stephanie, welcome. We're glad you're here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, Stephanie, tell us a, a little bit about your story and so that we can understand kind of where you're coming from. Yeah. So um, as you guys said, my name's Stephanie Morcom and I, I live here in Duncan, Oklahoma. And, you know, I grew up in a good home. My dad's actually on staff at First Baptist Duncan. And so I kind of grew up being in church every time the doors were open. Um, I had a good family. Um, I probably am not someone that most people in the church would have thought would be a drug addict. Um, and, and I'll kind of talk about that later, um, kind of stigma and, and how that um, hinders people from getting help. Um, but by the book, there wasn't a reason I should be an addict, right? I grew up in a good home. I was loved. I was a Christian. Um, but when I... I think I was about 20 when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and you know in 1998 99 in the early 2000s they gave meds out like candy and so I was there was a point I was on more medication for pain than my dad was who had four stage cancer at the time and so I mean looking back now I can see that's a problem but you know back then they were just you know dulling it out and unfortunately creating dependence um, on those substances. And so I battled uh, drugs for about 12 years. Um, and I was in and out of treatment. I went to treatment about seven times before I finally stayed sober. And um, the last time I went to treatment was in 2014. And, um, you know, my family was just done by that point. And that's really the only reason I got help. And so in the beginning of my addiction, I didn't have a lot of consequences, right? And even my family didn't really know the extent of it because I was very good at hiding it. And it was from a doctor. So, you know, families sometimes don't challenge that. I think they do more so today now that there's been so many things happen with the opioid epidemic. But back then it was, you know, trust the doctors. They know best, right? So, you know, before long, I started having marriage issues. Um, I, I've been married and divorced twice, unfortunately. Those were all kind of a consequence of my addiction. And um, in 2014, I got arrested for driving under the influence of drugs, um, which is a, called a DUID. 
And then I also got a possession charge because I had a bunch of prescriptions in my car that weren't in bottles and that's a felony. You're not allowed to do that. And so I got in trouble. And then about a week after that, I overdosed again. And after that, my parents were just done. And I remember my dad telling me, I don't know what you're going to do, but you can't do it here. Because I had overdosed in their home several times. One of those overdoses, I was on a ventilator in ICU for a couple of weeks. Um, I mean, I almost died. And so as hard as it is or was for my family to put their foot down, because that certainly doesn't feel like love, right? And I'm sure that they had the fear of, well, now she's going to, what if we don't see her again? Or what if she dies? Or, you know... There's a families have this idea of control, right? If they can keep them controlled, they can manage the addiction, but that is not how this disease works. And so the best thing that could have happened to me was for me to get into legal trouble and my family just cut me off because it forced me to have to get better. And it kind of took away all those enablers in my life that I used as rescuers, right? And I had to do it for myself. And and when we're alone, we know the only place to look is God to God, right? Because that's the only, or whoever their higher power is. In Oklahoma, it's usually God because we live in the Bible Belt, you know. So um, when it's only us, we only have one way to look. And I needed that. Um, and I needed all those people in my life to stop trying to manage my disease. And I had to be the one to finally hit rock bottom and kind of go from there. And so um, I just celebrated seven years sober um, this summer. And, you know, that's something I've never had before because the usual thing for me was to go to treatment. And then my parents always let me come home after. And so I would maybe stay sober for a month or two. But then before you know it, it was like back off to the races again. And the weird thing about addiction or alcoholism is this. Every relapse is worse than the last. So that's why, you know, it happens a lot. People will be like, why, you know, I hear loved ones say all the time, well, they've never been this bad. Well, every relapse is worse because we pick up where we left off and it just continues escalating from there. And um, that's kind of why it's so important for people to kind of be aware and make sure that they're not they're helping and not enabling. So there's a difference between the two, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you do now. Yeah. So I, I do a few things. So I, I actually work for a treatment facility called Ambrosia Treatment Center. Um, and, and in my capacity with that job, like our company promises, no matter who calls, we'll find them a bed. So I spend a lot of time finding treatment beds for adolescents, members of churches, DHS, the courts, you know, and just people that call me. Um, I always try to find them a bed, whether they have insurance or not, because a lot of times people think that just because they don't have money or insurance, they can't get help. And that's not true. Um, and so I always try to find them a bed. And, and I'm grateful for some connections I've made to kind of help help that, you know, be a little bit easier. And so I do that full time. And then I work part time with Wichita Mountains Prevention Agent, Wichita Mountains Prevention Network. And, and what they do is they have a grant for prevention, drug prevention efforts in Stevens County. 
And so the purpose of that is really targeting the schools um, and families and just raising awareness about prevention. Um, because if we can stop it before it starts and break the cycle, you know, a lot of kids grow up with addictive parents and they're stuck in that cycle of what seems normal. And if we can kind of um, teach them through education that that's not normal, that's not healthy and there's more to life, you know, that's a huge thing. Um, and then I also run a support group for families with addicted loved ones. And man, families are like a soft spot in my heart because I, I can see what I did to mine. And I've also been able to see God restore all that. And so I know it's possible because I see it all the time. But to tell a family that in the middle of it, they don't really understand that. So it's kind of my support group is about education and really just support. You know what I mean? Um, because we can't address what we don't acknowledge or don't understand, right? So sometimes people, some people don't even understand what addiction is or what it does to you. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that's that's good stuff. And and so I want us to kind of go to the beginning, and um, you know, as as we're thinking about helping, especially pastors and and family members what are some warning signs that we should be aware of? Um, because I'm, I know that you've told things in the past, oh, well, this person's on drugs or whatever. And I'm like, really? I had no clue. But you, you were able to pick up on those things that I wasn't. So can you give us some clues that we should look for? Well, so it's kind of interesting. Um, and, and I will say this, there were many years in my addiction that I looked just like I do now and people wouldn't have really have known. You know what I mean? So by the time we start seeing it physically, a lot of times that's in a, it's progressed a lot. But um, a lot, some basic warning signs are, you know, a loss of control um, and an inability to stay away from a substance despite negative consequences. So I'll just use me as an example. Um, I, you know, I had all these problems that were just continuing to mount, but I still was trying to find relief in a pill bottle, if that makes sense. I didn't have the ability to not do it. So addicts and alcoholics cross an imaginary line that they can't go back from. And that's kind of when it becomes an addiction. And so it's different for everyone. But once the dependence sets in, there start to be changes in the brain. And they need the alcohol or the drug in order to function. And so, you know, that's the hard part. But definitely isolating. If someone starts isolating or has a lack of interest in things that they used to do, like parents with their kids, right? Going to baseball games or t-ball games or attending church or, you know, spending time with family. I used to isolate a lot. I would stay in my room, you know, just my dad used to be like, well, this isn't just a place for you to sleep and shower. Like you have to be a part of the family, but that's kind of how I treated it. And so, you know, withdrawing and isolating, those are huge ones, but also just sometimes changes in behavior. Like, um, Maybe someone who's usually kind of uh, hyperactive, that's their personality, if they're subdued all the time now, or vice versa. Maybe someone that's quiet, that's very um, hyperactive all the time, or they fly off the handle easily, very irritable. 
you know, those can be just some common signs. And, you know, when people start abandoning their relationships with anyone, friends, family, church members, kids, I mean, those are usually warning signs. And, and they can be also, obviously, there could be other things going on, right? But if we know this person has a substance use problem or they have struggled in the past, then those can be indicators that they're heading towards relapse or that their disease is getting worse. Um, and, you know, there's physical signs, too. Um, I always look at people's pupils because I know, you know, pain medications and opiates usually make their pupils very small. And stimulants like meth and cocaine or Adderall make people's pupils really big. And so those are some small things I look at. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know exactly. You can't always look at someone and be like, yeah, they're using drugs. But. A lot of times, all these other situational, these circumstances and factors going on in the background with the family or losing jobs or getting in trouble with the law, and those things usually are back there too on some level, if that makes sense. You, a yeah. lot of times, a family, once their loved one gets sober, they'll look back and be like, man, why didn't I see that? You know what I mean? Um, but when you're in it, sometimes it's kind of hard to recognize. Yeah, so in, in the role we have, you know, and many of us, our listeners have in the role of pastor, you know, uh, you may suspect it, you may have this idea, I mean, what do we do? I mean, how, what should our response be when we suspect something like that's going on? So I always tell people, if you see something, say something, right? Because we don't want to live with our heads in the sand. Um, I Last year, 93,000 people died from an overdose. Um, that was, that blew our old statistics out of the water. And a lot of researchers think that this year is even going to blow last year out of the water. And so it's continuing, it's continuing to rise and get worse. And um, isolation is the very worst thing for an addict. That's the whole reason there's AA meetings and Celebrate Recovery and Sober Living. Those are all it's very important for an addict to have community, right? But also addicts don't always feel comfortable at church. So I didn't feel comfortable at church. Everyone knew what was going on. They treated me differently. And I think a lot of it was also my guilt, right? Because when we know we're doing something wrong, we kind of avoid it. Um, but a lot of times I think people don't know what to say. So I've been told and I've heard pastors say this a lot. Well, just pray about it. Pray about it and it'll get better. Well, that's, I mean, yes, always pray, right? But that's not very good advice for an addict or an alcoholic in the throes of addiction because there's oftentimes some clinical and medical things that have to be addressed. So it's kind of like, you know, it would be like a diabetic coming to church and being, you know, very ill and you saying, well, why don't you pray about it? Um, well, they can't eat sugar and they probably need to see a doctor too, right? So, because this is the thing, I prayed a lot that God would take away my addiction and that never happened. So, what I learned is God was putting the tools in front of me and I had to use the tools, right? So, there is a way out, but I think sometimes, I think that, that some of those answers come from a place of not knowing what to do, right? Um, but I think... I think churches need to be talking about it more. 
um, there's not a lot of churches that want to talk about suicide, addiction, and and mental health because it's not comfortable. You know what I mean? But right. but the numbers show that there's a good majority of people in every congregation that are struggling with that. And if it's not them, it may be their child or their husband or spouse or whatever. And so I think we have to be, you know, be willing to talk about it. And we have to make sure that pastors have the resources they need. Um, and I would always be happy to make sure that, you know, I have a pretty good resource book that I put together for our hospital. I would be more than happy to make sure you guys had that. Um, you know, and and I've met with pastors in a congregant several times um, to sit down and kind of have like an intervention kind of thing. You know what I mean? And just talk about it. Because we can't sweep it under the rug because addiction and alcoholism are progressive diseases that get worse, never better over time, unless they are intervened on. But that intervention doesn't have to come from courts. It can come from, you know, it can come from a pastor or other people that love them, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and um, Stephanie, you mentioned that you had to go through rehab like seven times. Is that, if I remember, you said that. And so it got me to thinking, you know, how do we deal with the fact that the addicts are going to relapse um, a number of times before they get to the point, I guess, and you said rock bottom to the, to the point where they could change. How do we deal with that, uh, you know? So, you know, I, I, I did go to treatment several times. And this is kind of, I'll tell you why it didn't work for me the first few times. The first few times I went and I, I just kind of held my breath for 30 days to get through it. Most people can do that. You know what I mean? Fake it, fake it through. And I wasn't really ready. And I knew I had a place to come home to and I could just continue life like I wanted to. You know what I mean? So it wasn't until those things were taken away from me and I was kind of forced to do the work. So that's why recovery programs are so important. So I actually got sober in AA. Um, I send a lot of people to celebrate recovery because those are where they learn the tools to stay sober. So because it's, it's very easy for addicts and alcoholics when they're having a bad day or even a good day to just resort back to what they did before, right? Because alcohol and drugs essentially become the best friend of the person using them. They turn to them when they're happy, sad, mad, like whatever it is, that's where they turn. And so it's almost kind of like a grieving process. I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, you've had this tool that you've used that is always worked until it stopped working, right? And it always stops working, uh, and things get worse. Um, but, you know, it's really about the work and it's about having them in services after treatment because nobody is going to get fixed in 60, 30, 90 days. You know what I mean? There's not a cure. It's kind of a lifelong thing. And a lot of it is too making sure the family has support. So that the family understands that 30 days in treatment isn't going to fix them. And to have that expectation is kind of setting everyone up to fail. And so the hard part of that is this. In rural Oklahoma, there's not a lot of resources that someone may have if they lived in Oklahoma City or Tulsa. So it's kind of sometimes being creative, making sure they have those tools. 
but relapse doesn't have to be a part of recovery. Um, I mean, I, we relapse before we ever take a drug. So people can usually start spotting those behaviors in someone sober before they actually start using again. And it starts off those old behaviors we used to do start creeping back and that old thinking and manipulation and being sneaky that starts creeping back in long before we usually start back using again. And so if we can catch it then and kind of educate, you know, family and friends and pastors of what to look for, I think we can catch it before it gets bad again, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think what you're talking about, too, is we have to kind of create that way where we stop, we start to rewire that brain. If we don't get the brain back on its on its better rewiring process, we're, we're kind of going to get stuck in that process. And so if you, if you really get to the healing part of all of that, you're, you're going to be further down, down the road. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Is just getting those tools to kind of get the wires <laughs> connected properly? Yes, sir. And you know, the hard part is this, a lot of times, um, like I didn't want to do aftercare when I left treatment. I wanted to go to treatment and come home. You know what I mean? But I needed it. So I went to treatment and then I actually lived in sober living for a year. And then I went to work for them. And then I moved to a different sober living and worked for them. So I lived in like sober living for almost five years. Most addicts aren't going to do that. I was working for them. It was a different situation. But really, the reason we suggest sober living in the first place is because they get that accountability they need. They're being drug tested. They're being forced to go to meetings. They're kind of being made to do those things that they may not do if they weren't in that situation. The family, though, can do that. So I'm going to just give you an example. So I do interventions, and in my intervention training, um, we model our intervention training off of the doctors and the airline pilots program. So if a doctor or an airline pilot has a drug issue, they're either put into a five or seven year case management plan. It's very long term. And they're forced to go to treatment. They're made to go to meetings. They have all this accountability around them. And so what I like to do for families is create like the board of the family, right? So there's someone that's holding everyone accountable and the family's getting support, the addict's getting support, everyone's on the same page to kind of spear off or kind of beat any kind of relapse from happening, right? Because there's always signs. And and that's kind of that's why they say addiction is a family disease because one person uses but everyone suffers and so we want them all to be healthy. Um what usually happens is the family is as sick as the addict is. Um, so when the addict's really struggling, the family's also really struggling. And it's kind of like this curve, you know, like everyone's doing well and then they go down and, and then up again. And so, and the reason is, is because they don't know what to do. And so they start doing unhealthy helping things like trying to control them, trying to monitor them, you know, giving them rules, all these things that don't really work because ultimately we can't control it, you know, uh, that's up to them. But we can have boundaries in place to kind of motivate them, if you will, to get help. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Hmm. Well, 
I think that the, the family, I know you and I have talked about this in the past, that the family is really important. And, you know, you also mentioned that the, the length of program, I, I think, is a big deal. You know, someone goes to rehab for days and they expect everything to be magically better. Uh, and I've seen so many families, they're just so brokenhearted and disappointed when things fall apart as soon as that person comes back. Um, and so, you know, if you're in that boat where you know that you've got a family member that is dealing with addiction, those 30-day programs are not going to be much help to you. Um, and go ahead, Stephanie. Well, and you know, it's hard because insurance usually only pays for 30 days. Treatment's very mm -hmm. expensive. So it's pretty common that it's 30 days. And unfortunately, it looks like insurance is going to start only doing that. So yeah 90 days is always great like that's good and the reason why is it gets them out of their environment into a new environment and gives them a chance to kind of form new habits but even if someone goes to 90 days of treatment and just comes home and doesn't change anything else they probably won't stay sober you know what i mean um well and so the you mentioned though the family has to be are just as sick as the the addict and so there needs to be some help in ministry i think a lot of people just look at the family and say okay you're going to be fine as soon as that person in their family gets better you guys are you all are going to be fine and i don't i don't think that's right uh, you know there needs to be some help for the family and ministry to the family alongside that as well well and you know a lot of families believe that they caused it or if I would have done this or I should have done that or, you know, but none of that's true, right? Because I see it every day, you know, and there's people that I know and that grew up in situations that they should be an addict, right? Like mm -hmm. if we're looking at that and they're not. So it's, you know, families just have to, and this is the other thing. I, and I always tell addicts when they go to treatment because they, they'll call me frustrated when they get out of treatment and their family still doesn't want anything to do with them. And a lot of that is, is it takes, it took me 12 years to make the mess that I made. It's going to take longer than 90 days to clean it up. You know what I mean? And because we have to rebuild trust and have transparency and, and usually families want to see it in action. They don't really care so much about the talk. So I, I wasn't really allowed in my parents' house. I, I didn't have a code. I didn't have a key. I think I was three years sober before I was allowed back in their home by myself. That's how long it took. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Because it's, we have to kind of re, re, rebuild ourselves or remake ourselves, if you will. And, you know, a lot of times when we get sober, if we've been using for so long, we don't even know who we are. You know what I mean? Like, and that's scary in, a, in, in and of itself, right? Because you have someone, some alcoholics have been drinking for 40 years. They've never dealt with their feelings. And all of a sudden they have to, you know, it's just kind of, it just takes a while. And so, you know, I, it's important for the family because the family has to heal too. Because there's always hurt and trauma and usually lying and dishonesty in the background. And, you know, it just takes time. But I think as a church, we can absolutely be supportive of those people without making them feel alienated. I think a lot of people are scared to talk about it in church because they're embarrassed. And a lot of times families are in denial even, right? That 
um, that it's even a problem. Um, so making them feel comfortable, I think, is huge. I think we, we as a church need to make sure that everyone understands that they're not hopeless. There's nothing they've done that God can't redeem and that they're not too lost to be saved because when we get stuck in that thinking, we just kind of continue to spiral um, because I've never met anyone that's hopeless. Um, and I've, I've, I've helped a lot of people. Um, and, and the other important thing about the family is you know, there's nothing families can do to cause addiction. Um, they're just not that powerful. You know what I mean? They can't control it and they didn't cause it. Um, but also we want to make sure they understand how to help them in a healthy way. And that's kind of where the support for them comes in. Because we don't want to just start giving our new newly recovered addict money again, right? Or paying their bills and, you know, they got to work for that stuff. Yeah, that's important. Tough love. I mean, yes. it, it is. It's, a, it's definitely a tough love situation. Now, we've got pastors listening to us, and there could be some pastors who are struggling with addiction, and maybe they're ashamed. They, they know they've got a problem. They don't know what to do. What, what would you say to someone who's listening today who's, who's uh, they know they've got a problem and they don't know what to do? Man, I would tell them, don't give up. You know what I mean? And ask for help. It doesn't, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of facilities that are out of state and they could go to treatment and no one would ever even know it. You know what I mean? And I'm not suggesting to keep it a secret, but not everything needs to be aired like that in the beginning, right? We, we all have our own time when we want to disclose those things. Um, I tried to keep mine a secret for a long time and I just tried to battle it myself, right? I can do this. I made this mess. I'll clean it up. But that's part of our disease of thinking. And the enemy wants us there because he knows we can't get out of it, right? Because we we, mm. we have to have God kind of help us out. Um, and I think the other thing I would say is it doesn't matter how good of a good of a Christian, that's not a great word, but you know what I mean. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is. We all have things we struggle with. And the fact that you may need outside help doesn't make you any less of a person or a Christian it just means that physically you probably need a little bit of extra help to get out of it, but, but you can, you know what I mean? And it's, there's, you know, the shame is what keeps us down so long is that shame. You know what I mean? That I should be better than this. This shouldn't be happening to me. Um, but a lot of times it starts off in an innocent way from prescription drugs. You know what I mean? Um, and, or just having a glass of wine every night. And then before you know it, you're like, oh, man, I didn't even know, like, how did this happen? You know, nobody sets out wanting to be addicted to substances. You know what I mean? That's true. Well, and I, I guess I would add to that, um, you know, especially if you're listening to this and you're in ministry, that you need a group of people to help you to deal with this. And you may not be able to talk to your family or your church family. Um, that's why Alan and I do this podcast is we want to be a help to you in your ministry. And I know that Stephanie wants to be a help as well. And so um, we want to encourage you to contact us and, and uh, we'll make, uh, if Stephanie, if you don't mind, we'll help them to contact you if they get in touch with us. And, that's and completely so, fine. 
you know, it's the hardest part of it all is, um, is the shame, right? But that's kind of where the enemy wants us to stay because our secrets keep us sick. Um, I, I say that all the time, but it's true. You know, um, when it comes to the light, it's, it's, it's scary, right? But it's easier to handle in the light, you know, and there's just so many different resources. You know, I've helped many alcoholics um, and addicts who, you know, have jobs that are, you know, important and they can't leave for work. And there's, there's some, so many different ways we can help someone without them having to go away for 90 days. You know what I mean? There's so many, so many different ways we can help someone that wants help. That's really what it's about. If they want help, we can make it happen. Um, and, you know, I think it could probably be one of their biggest ministry tools, honestly, especially in the world we live in today, because a lot of people want to know that someone's real and not perfect. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and I think people think that maybe their pastor, well, he's perfect. He doesn't have the same problems and issues that I have. And that's just not true. All of us, we're, we're humans and we all have struggles. And, uh, and so if you, if you are listening to this, maybe you are in ministry, maybe you're not, but whatever, if you're dealing with a, a struggle, man, you're not alone. And Satan loves to separate us out from the herd, right? And so that he can attack us. And I, man, we just want to encourage you to, to gather a group of people that you trust. That's really important. That you trust to be a you know, your group that will hold you accountable. I love what you said about our secrets keep us sick. And and then what you said about the uh, the program, the length of time that doctors and, and airline pilots have to go through that, it takes a long time. I don't think people realize that it takes that long to, someone, to overcome an addiction. Man, it's, addiction is a crazy thing. You know, um, they say it's cunning and baffling. Because it keeps us thinking, oh, it's not that bad, or it's not that bad. And before you know it, you know what I mean? Um, and that's usually how relapse starts. Well, I can have one drink, and then before you know it, that one drink is a bottle, or or they're, you know, using other substances. And, you know, addiction and alcoholism is an equal opportunity destroyer. It doesn't matter what, what kind of faith you have, how much money you have, how educated you are, what color you are. I mean, it's it comes for all of us. Uh, none of us are exempt, um, but there's help for everyone. And the good, what I always try to do, and, and like you said, anyone can always call me. You can feel free to pass my info along. I always try to meet them where they are and figure out what the best plan is for them because everyone's situation is different. You know what I mean? There's not a cookie cutter, um, cookie cutter part because everyone's, you know, there's so many different variables and I try to figure out what's best for them, what's going to work for them and, and go from there. And, and when I'm working with a family, I try to make sure that everyone in the family understands what's going on and, you know, is on the same page. If I can, sometimes those bridges are burned. Um, and that everyone is getting services so that everyone can be healing at the same time. Yeah, that's great. Healing, healing is kind of what we're about. Healing is what helps us endure. It's what, what, what makes all of this last. And I, I too love what you had to say about shame because shame is an enemy. 
Mm. And we weren't we weren't meant to live live in shame. And so dealing with that is, is, is a big part of that healing process as well. Stephanie, I just want to thank you for taking your time to uh, join us today. This is such a such a huge topic and it's it's a big topic and we could probably go on and on and on and hopefully we can talk to you again sometime um, about some more specifics because I know I know this is gonna uh, touch a lot of a lot of people out there so th- thanks for sharing with us today thank you for having me um, you know I want to say one thing I, I harp about it a lot on Facebook but in Oklahoma suicide is the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 24 and I really think it's important that our pastors, if they're listening, be bold in talking about some of these things affecting our our families, like addiction and mental health, because, you know, I think the church is for the broken, right? It's a hospital for the sick. And sometimes we have to go to the addicts, right? We can't always expect them to come to us. And so my prayer is that we are always open-minded and loving no matter who walks in the doors, even if they don't look like us. You know what I mean? So, so Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, we do want to say thank you for taking time. I know that you're a very busy person and things going on, but thank you for for having a conversation with us. And uh, if you are listening to this and this really touches a need that you have, um, please contact us. We do want to be part of your support group. We want to help you get the tools you need. Maybe there's someone in your congregation that you want to reach out to. You're afraid to make the conversation or to say a word. And Stephanie told us, this, if you see something, say something. And that is true. We need to do that. And um, But again, you can contact us here, uh, Alan at, Alan at Consulting or Trent at EnduringChurches.Consulting. You can go to EnduringChurches.com or you can find us on Facebook. And we'd love to have a further conversation with you about any needs that you have. So thanks for listening. And thank you, Stephanie, for being part of this today. And we hope that you endure. Thank you, guys.